This episode is sponsored by Realtor.com, who wants you to take advantage of your free profile on Realtor.com. By claiming and completing your free profile, adding a photo, and all of the information that puts you head and shoulders above the competition, you're on your way to receiving free leads, helping search engines find you, and staying top of mind with past clients. To learn more about claiming your free profile, go to realtor.com forward slash profile. Welcome to the Real View podcast, where Ohio realtors connect you to innovators and influencers, keeping you with the real view of real estate. Whether you're a broker, agent, first time home buyer, industry leader, or just happen to stumble upon our podcast today, you can expect to hear tips, tools, tricks, interesting information, and so much more from the experts in Ohio's real estate game. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Real View Podcast. I am your host, Allison. Joining me today is our special guest, Matthew Gardner. He is the chief economist for Windermere Real Estate, the second largest regional real estate company in the nation. He specializes in residential market analysis, commercial and industrial market analysis, financial analysis, and land use and regional economics, and has more than 30 years of experience in the U.S. and the U.K. and is our financial guru who is going to break down um, the 2023 housing market for us and what we can expect. So super excited to have you on here at the beginning of the year to tell us all that we need to know <laughs> about this year's housing market. Matthew, welcome onto the show. Thank you, Allison. It's great to be here. Yeah, super excited to be having you on and talking to you. But before we get started in your wonderful predictions for this 2023 housing market, I want to hear a little bit about you. Tell us what you do as the chief economist and in your role there. And what has your career path been like? I'm always curious to see how people get to where they are. So tell us a little bit about you and what you do in your career path. Well, um, <laughs> kind of an interesting story, depending on on uh, on how you look at it. As you probably gather, I'm not from around here. I love I uh, love I was... the accent. I just I love British accent. <laughs> I know it's probably such an American thing to say is like we love the British accent, but I do. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. I was so born and raised in London. And I went up to actually I got my undergraduate degree at Oxford uh, University. So I went up there to study economics and I kind of liked it a lot. And so from there, I went um, back from Oxford, back to London for my master's and then actually came across to Harvard to join Central Real Estate Studies. Now, how did I get into this industry? It's interesting. There aren't that many real estate economists out there. But the uh, first job that I had back in the UK was for a company of surveyors and land agents, kind of a weird sounding term or, or, or job. What these companies used to do were manage estates for large corporations. But on my part, it was the Church of England and the royal family. And so we're involved in, in managing their, their portfolios, their estates. I found that you could take kind of good real economic principles and, and translate those in into real estate. Well, the crown still has rather large bit of America. And that brought me across to the States. Ended up coming out to Seattle because actually my sister, she worked for Microsoft way back in the day. I looked around here and said, well, who analyzes the housing market? Well, no one did literally licked their thumbs, stuck it in the air and went the way the wind goes. And so I decided it's a good place to uh, hang my shingle. I had a consulting company for about, oh Lord, about almost 20 years. And Windermere Real Estate was one of my first clients. I was consulting with them. And because we created a very good long-term relationship, they asked me to come in-house and work for them directly, which I decided to do. So now my job 
is we've got about almost 7,000 real estate brokers in the 10 Western states. My job is to make them hopefully smarter than anyone else by giving them the information, the tools they need for them to be successful in their careers. That's awesome. I love that. I always love getting background story on our (laughs) guests I have on. It just gives good context. And I like to hear, you know, what got people to where they are today. So thanks for sharing. And you're right. Yeah, there there really hasn't been, um, you know, that niche that you found. There really hasn't been anything like that. So I love that you were able to find that um, here and, and have done such a good job at explaining this housing market that we're in. So Let's just start off with, um, you know, where does the market stand right now? We're just, you know, about two weeks into the new year. We've been through a lot in the past uh, two, two, two and a half years-ish. Where does the market stand today? And maybe talk a little bit about just where we've been and how we got to where we are right now. Where we stand today, it's interesting. I think we are in what I'm calling a period of reversion. What's reversion? Oh, quite frankly, when COVID-19, when the pandemic started, the real estate market was hit very significantly, depending on how you look at it, uh, in a positive way. That all depends. Uh, and why was that? Well, a couple of reasons. One of which was because the pandemic and working from home and remote working, that hit a lot of people who own their homes, who don't have to be in, in an office or don't have to be in, in face-to-face industries. And so as such, we found people's, their ability to live somewhere else was significantly increased. But more importantly than that, was the Federal Reserve. And why do I say the Fed? Well, they wanted to stabilize the housing market. And they could do that in two ways. For renters, moratoria on evictions, you can't kick anyone out. But for homeowners, well, what do they do? They started buying 10-year treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. And they were buying a lot of them, about $2.7 trillion worth. What did that lead to? Well, it was purely because of that, mortgage rates plummeted. And all of a sudden, the 30-year fixed rate mortgage dropped below 3%, which it has never done in the life of the 30-year, which goes back to the early 1970s. So all of a sudden, money was, in essence, free. So that did a couple of things. Massive surge of demand transactions were at levels in 2021, which we hadn't seen since 2005. Huge amount of sales. But more importantly, prices went parabolic. They just went to hit the upside with jets, quite frankly because it was so cheap to borrow. We saw almost a sugar high in the marketplace for that period, really starting in early to mid 2020, until the start of last year. I say the start of last year, the impacts were announced then, but we really found the market kept on going until about April or May. And what was that? Well, that was the Fed again saying, well, guess what? We're gonna get out of the business of buying treasuries and buying mortgage-backed securities. To use their technical phrase, they were going to move from quantitative easing, which is basically printing money, to quantitative tightening, really kind of getting money supply lower. Uh, And because of that, mortgage rates doubled in the course of the year. So we had, there's obviously going to be a lag time as to when that hits housing market, but we saw a peak in the US housing market price-wise in April of last year, and it has been trending lower. And I say reversion because, quite frankly, we are reverting back to the kind of level of price growth, let's say, that we should be at and not this artificial level that we saw for the last couple of years. You explained that so perfectly. And I know, especially in Ohio, just going off of the December home sales reports, I mean, we saw like a 25% decline. And while that may be an alarming number at first, it's really not because you just mentioned it's, it's not that we're tanking so badly. It's just we're stabilizing, getting back to normal compared to what we were during the pandemic. 
Well, and that's right. Now, that's the thing that people are going to get very concerned. They start looking at the kind of month over month numbers. And I'll be honest with you, come probably this April, when National Association of Realtors announces the April sales prices, which will be sometime in May. Well, because we hit the peak last April, people are automatically going to say, well, it was very high. It's now dropped a massive amount. Uh, we're back in 2007 again. But that is absolutely not the case. And you can't, quite frankly, can't look at numbers in that respect anyway. But more importantly, unless you did buy, if you bought in April, then you have, you can't have, probably you're not overly happy right now. But quite frankly, the, the price growth we've seen for the last couple of years is such that we are in remarkably good shape when it comes to our homes in terms of the equity levels that we've built up through that pandemic period. Yeah, absolutely. And I love to just mention, because you're right, it's so um, people start to panic, you know, when they think it's going badly. But will we or will we not be in a housing bubble this year? And I know you kind of mentioned this is not like 2007. This is not like 2008. What factors are kind of stopping us from being in that housing bubble? And how is this different? I mean, everyone certainly wants everyone. A lot of people are trying to, in essence, shoehorn what happened in 2007 into what's going on today, purely based upon the fact that prices skyrocketed. But the two periods are so completely different from one another. And I remember myself, I remember buying a home back in the early 2000s. My mortgage broker said, well, send me a copy of QuickBooks and we're going to be fine. Like, really? Well, let me make a couple of changes here. So what we had, we, uh, we had all those liar loans, those no documentation, low documentation. And my all-time favorite, zero down option arm with cash back at closing. Oh, wow. I mean, what, could po- what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah. And so we had a situation back in 2000 through 2006 when people, quite frankly, were buying homes that had no right buying a home. They were in with teaser rates uh, and remarkably low interest rates, but there was no down payments. Uh, they had no proof of income. And because of that, and because almost 90% of subprime mortgages written back then were adjustable rate mortgages, well, when the Fed jumps in and raised rates, we saw mortgage rates rise in 2007, these folks found their mortgage payments were going to double. And so because they built up no equity, what did they do? They walked away, flood of foreclosures, huge wave of supply. And when you get more supply than demand, go back to your Econ 401 classes, what happens to prices? They drop. Okay, now that was then, this is now. What's the difference? Well, I'm not sure about you, but I refinanced my home twice through COVID as rates were plummeting. And quite frankly, it was like giving blood. Um, (laughs) It was remarkably tight. The underwriting was was insane. And the average FICO score on an approved conventional loan uh, in December was about 761. So credit quality, very, very high. That's point one. We can afford to pay our mortgages. Point two, down payments are higher as well. So although we've seen that price growth, People trying to compare now with what happened back before the housing bubble burst, the two are completely different from one another. And the most important thing, I, I think, is that my concern today, it's not a lack of demand, although certainly demand is going to be depressed because of affordability and where prices are and mortgage rates having, I think they've peaked, but they've gone up significantly. But it's the fact that by my kind of back of the napkin calculations, there's over 20 million households in America with mortgage rates at 3% or below. So answer me this question. If I don't have to sell, why would anyone sell and lose that never seen before, never seen again, likely mortgage rate? So that means we're going to be supply starved and that unto itself can be fairly protective of pricing. 
Yeah. And that was a perfect kind of segment into something I wanted to talk about too. Inventory is just such a hot topic. I know it's something we struggle with here in Ohio, and I'm sure very similar across the rest of the U.S., but what can we expect from those inventory levels like this year? And I know you kind of just mentioned, um, you know, why would anybody want to sell their house when their mortgage rate is at 2%, which is so true. What can we expect from inventory levels? And then what about new construction, too? Because I know this is something that gets brought up a lot when we talk about inventory. Well, I mean, if we think about it uh, in general, I think we're going to be supply starved, as I mentioned earlier on. And in fact, nationally speaking, we obviously we haven't got the December numbers out from now yet. They'll, they'll be out in a week or so. I think we will have just about squeezed above, not very slightly, about 5 million units uh, in terms of sales. This year, my forecast will be around 4.8 million. So it's a, a lower level we've seen since oh, 2014. So it, it is <laughs> certainly a lot of our brokers out there are not used to this. But it really is, I think, uh, going forward through the course of this year and likely next year, I just don't think we're going to see the churn and the turnover of existing homes you'd expect to see. Now, don't get me wrong. People will still sell for the classic reasons they do. One is job change, and then the other two are death and divorce. But outside of that, in terms of people choosing to sell or maybe retiring, downsizing, That will happen, but it's not going to happen at the normal velocity you'd expect to see. And the problem with that is we are still creating households. So we've got that demand. And what should happen if the resale market's not picking up? Quite frankly, the new construction market should be, but it's not doing it either. Uh, And the reasons for that are very straightforward. Uh, It is very expensive to build. Now, depending on where in the country you are, and here I'm based up in the Northwest, But the concern I have is that material costs, although it's getting a bit easier, it is still very expensive. So land can be expensive depending on where in the country you are. Labor costs are high. There are fewer people working today in single family construction as there were in 2006. Then we think about it that way. No one's going to vocational school, so no one's getting into the trades. That pushes up labor prices, materials. Lumber is getting better, but uh, copper, aluminum, steel, even paint. Exterior paint is up 45% year on year. And regular, finally, regulatory fees. So when you look at all these things, all these costs that a builder has to, is faced with in order to build a home, well, let's say they take all these cost centers, they figure out what it will be, they throw some profit on there, and it spits out a number they have to sell the home for to make a margin. And let's say that number is $500,000. Well, if the market price acceptance point is 300000 are they going to build it? No, they won't. And so what we are seeing in general uh, across the country is building to the luxury end of the market and not where I believe a majority of the demand is today and will be for the next likely 15 years. And that's in the entry level market. Millennials are getting older and they want to buy a home. Yep, they're ready too. You know, so many people have saved so much money during COVID. And, you know, like you said, the credit rates are are so good that we're seeing and, and people have been able to save money due to COVID, just not going out of the house, not being able to spend money on things that we would normally save money on. And that's, like you said, helping with those down payments and in those high scores. Yeah, I mean, as far as down payments concerned, I mean, it, that's another interesting point because, yes, once the moratorium on evictions went away and renters had to start paying rent again, well, we had landlords raise rents very, very significantly. And in a lot of markets, the problem that these people had, these households had, was do I pay the rent or do I save up for a down payment? Now, half are still going to the bank of mum and dad for assistance for a down payment. But I, I think that it's hard for that first time buyer. They're buying right now about 28% of all homes that are, tra- are traded in the country. 
It should be higher than that. And I mentioned millennials. Yes, they're getting older. But in the next 18 months to two years, nine million millennials will turn 30. There's a million millennial women having babies every year. They do want to buy a home. They realize that's the best path to create wealth. But there are so many obstacles in the way. One of the biggest ones being price. This episode of The Real View is brought to you by the Ohio Association of Community Colleges. Ohio's network of community colleges provides accessible training that accommodates the busy lifestyles of aspiring real estate professionals at half the price of a traditional university. With convenient locations in every part of the state, as well as online options, Ohio's community colleges are your smart choice for pre-licensing education. For more details or to start the journey to a real estate career, visit the education page at ohiorealtors.org and then click on the pre-licensed course locations. What kind of shifts can we expect for maybe sellers in the sense? So, you know, we're realtors here. We have to educate our clients on what to expect and, and make sure that they have the appropriate expectations. And we saw so much of just homes flying off before they're even, you know, before they're even have time to let the ink dry on the newspaper ad. And we're just seeing stuff fly off the market so quickly. Just talking to somebody yesterday who was joking that like, oh my gosh, you think a home on the market for 30 days is freaking people out. But <laughs> how do we adjust our sellers' expectations and what do sellers need to know now that we're not kind of seeing the craziness that the market was a year or two ago? It's crazy is a great way to, to put it, Alison. It really is. It's We saw a situation, quite frankly, when I was speaking to a broker out of this area who said, you know, Matthew, the list price for home is nothing more than the auction start price. Scary thing to wow. hear. Wow, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Homes came to the market and literally enlisting brokers were waiting for the 24 hours and all of a sudden offers to come rolling in. Again, it's that reversion heading back to normal. But our, our, our mentality and certainly home sellers mentality, they're very short thinking. Uh, it, it, they forget very easily what a normal market looks like. And so because of that, they say, well, what do you mean I'm not getting a, a dozen offers in within 24 hours? Well, you've got to think back. And the same thing applies to brokers as well. And I can tell in the speech that I give across the country, the newer brokers, shall we say, from the more seasoned newer brokers right now have been in the market the last few years. It's been wonderful. They're running around, quite frankly, like chickens with their heads cut off. Yet the seasoned brokers, maybe those that went through 2007, or they're sat back with a martini in one hand and a cigarette in the other saying, this is nothing. So it's getting back to normal. Now, what's important from a seller's perspective is price. I think all brokers, your listing broker, going forward, accurately pricing someone's home is going to be more important now than we've seen it in years. And it really will be because that ravenous demand is not there. Cost to borrow is still, although coming down a bit, perhaps we'll talk about mortgage rates in a bit, but it's, it's certainly more expensive than we saw it a couple of years ago. Home sellers' expectations are still very high. I mean, all of a sudden they say, well, no, I, I, I prune my rhododendron trees. My house is worth $50,000 more than the guy next door. That is their opinion. And they certainly they can have an opinion, but a broker will always and should always know far more accurately what someone's home is worth than the home owner. And the trouble is sometimes you can tell that owner their home is worth, let's say, 500000 But if they think it's worth 600000 in their minds, they've lost $100,000. That money didn't exist in the first place. So uh, I think it really is understanding that it is, we are trending back to a more normal market. 
over and above that, what people are looking for in a home has changed as well. And obviously big things that up here, broadband internet, well, we have it everywhere here. That is important. But a dedicated workspace, because there will be, I don't think we're ever going to go back to a traditional five days a week in, in an office ever uh, again. So having a spot that's not your dining room table, that is higher on people's list of requirements. We've seen it before as is uh, more usable outdoor spaces. That's something else which I've heard brokers talk about, even up here where it tends to rain fairly frequently here in Seattle. That's something that they're hearing from their clients a lot as well. And in some people are now still moving away from that open floor plan concept, which was very popular to now more, more, more separated rooms. But I'm not sure that's something which is going to continue forever. But uh, these are things which I'm, uh, I'm hearing more frequently now than I've heard in several years. Yeah, it's so funny to think that, you know, more importantly to having a home is an office versus like a big, nice kitchen, you know, like who would have ever thought? Right. <laughs> well, it's true because I mean, builders used to build studies up until the 1990s, but then they realized it was a waste of space because no one ever used them. And now that is very different as we go forward. And we already know there are companies, uh, we've been waiting for all of them to congeal their thoughts in, in respect to how frequently they want their workers to come back. Disney, Bob Iger, uh, he came out a couple of days ago and said four days a week. That's the way it's going to be. Starbucks, we're pretty heavy on the coffee up here. They're now saying, no, you've got to be in at least three days a week, of which two of them must be a Tuesday and Wednesday, these kinds of things. We'll hear more of that. And I think that's going to be interesting because we could also find potentially this year some would-be buyers who have been waiting for their companies to say, how often do I have to come in? Once they actually get that information, or maybe they, they could get off the fence and say, okay, now is the time for me to start looking for a home or indeed a new home. So we could actually see even more demand as companies really get their act together with uh, clarifying what they expect from their employees. Yeah, that'll be interesting to kind of watch now that the dust is beginning to settle or has settled from COVID and we're all trying to figure out that post-COVID life, you know, what that looks like. That's going to be a very interesting trend to watch. I do want to touch on mortgage rates, so I'm glad you brought that up. I know we've kind of see we saw them shot up and now they're starting to come back down again, but still not as low as like you mentioned, those historic two and three percent. When can we expect to see them if they're going to drop anymore? When can we expect to see that? If they're not, when can we start to see that normalization and kind of that steady rate come out? How is that going to affect these future home buyers that are going to be on the market with these mortgage rates? We, I think we've seen the peak that occurred in the fourth quarter of last year. As we move forward, I do expect rates to slowly trend lower. However, I don't think they're going to break below 6% until sometime later on this summer, maybe in, into the early fall, then they'll hit the fives. But it's going to be a slow, arduous process heading back down. But the, most importantly, anyone that's out there waiting for a sub 3%, 30 don't wait. Highly unlikely we will ever see that again. But it's quite possible we could we could get possibly into the fours in, in 2024. That's looking out a bit of my crystal ball gets a bit fogged over after about a year. But I certainly think that once we hit that 5% or break below 5%, psychologically speaking, that'll be a level that could be more attractive again to people to start saying, OK, well, now it's time to move uh, and think about buying a new home. So you have to remember there's something called the one in 10 rule. Well, if mortgage rates uh, are, say, at 4% and you want to borrow whatever amount of money it is, if mortgage rates go to 5 and you want to keep your monthly payment the same, you can borrow 10% less. Pure mathematics. 
But the same thing applies on the other way around. So as mortgage rates drop, buying power is going to improve. And that's going to be a good thing. I don't think we're going to see rates skyrocket. Again, some were saying that, oh, we're going to see 8, 10, 12% mortgage rates. No, we're not. Haven't seen those for decades and it was not going to happen. But they will slowly come down. But it's going to take some time. And quite frankly, right now, it's going to be wholly dependent on the Federal Reserve on, and on the direction of inflation. But if we do end up having an economic slowdown this year, which I think we will, that can actually be good for mortgage rates. As people move out of equities and into fixed income, and, and that's basically what drives mortgage rates, which are the interest rates on treasuries, particularly 10-year treasuries. Yeah, so definitely uh, take a look at that in that late summer, early fall timeframe that you mentioned, keep an eye out. And I do want to mention, too, something else in, in your article that you wrote about these, these predictions for 2023 is the government's role in all of this, which I'm so glad that you brought up. And it's something that needs to be brought up more when we're talking about the housing market and, and some of the issues that we're seeing there is just the government's role in all of this. And specifically, you mentioned kind of when it comes to those land use policies and, and how the government can kind of have you know, a role in that. What's their role in housing and land use and how can the government really make an impact uh, when it comes to this housing market and maybe solve some of the problems that we were talking about, you know, when it comes to low inventory, affordable housing and, and things like that? Well, it really is affordability, as you said. There must always be a relationship between incomes and home prices, but that relationship can certainly break in different times and it's broken right now. Now, the most important things I mentioned is not just millennials, we always pick on them, but Gen Z, the next uh, generation behind them. We have got a veritable tsunami wave of demand coming in over the next 15 years. But what are they going to be able to afford to buy? Now, a lot of people were saying, certainly after the burst in the housing bubble, that these young kids, they're, they're going to be mobile. They're going to have, have an average of 13 jobs in, in their careers. They don't ever want to buy a home because they're going to want to be nimble and moving around. I totally disagreed back then with that theory. And it appears if I was correct. And the biggest reason is that Housing, ownership housing is the way a majority of Americans create their wealth. Interesting way they think about it. It's not through crypto or anything else. It is through housing. And why do I say that? I mean, well, the median household wealth of a homeowner household in America today, by my calculations, is around $330,000. The median household wealth of a rental household in America today is $8,000. Quite a discrepancy. So even though these uh, younger workers might want to be more nimble, but they do want to buy. And the home ownership is still that American dream. But what can they afford to buy and where can they afford to buy it? So because a lot of parts of the country, about 17 or 18 states in the union, implemented very significant zoning restrictions over the course of the last 50, 60 years, limits where you can and where you cannot build. Depending on where you are, and we have the same thing certainly up here in Washington state, but the issues we have is too much water and too many mountains. Our land use policies were created in, in this state back in the late 1920s, early 1930s. Well, it made sense then. It probably made sense through the 70s. It makes zero sense today. The idea we all want our white picket fence, kind of 2.4 kids and a dog. Well, that day is behind us, I believe. We need to look at uh, land and how zoning is it appropriate now? We know many parts of the country, Minneapolis actually, in Minnesota started, with allowing the development of duplexes or, or triplex or four unit buildings inside any single family zoned area. Uh, now, that's not the, an answer to all problems uh, at all, but it is at least doing something. The state of Oregon, Governor Brown, uh, she signed the same legislation uh, into law a couple of years ago. Governor Newsom down in California did the same thing. So we are finding more states 
themselves start to get more involved. Although generally speaking, land use policy is run by the jurisdiction, by the cities or the counties. But I'm hearing states now saying, if you don't fix it, we are going to step in and fix it for you. And that I think is something that's going to be important, but also financing. There's things called uh, like tax increment financing. And what that means is that a developer, he has to pay taxes on, on the development that he's building, but not until the city or the, or the county starts receiving some of the revenue from the residents of those new buildings. So almost deferring those tax liabilities. And also, I think they can, uh, ways that the federal government can involve in, with uh, down payments on mortgages. And there's lots of things that can be done. But I think it's going to be important because if we don't fix it, we're becoming increasingly a bifurcated nation of haves and have-nots. A little less applicable in the Midwest, can have a lot of land, but certainly on the either, either coast and even the mountain states, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. But one last thing about that is the, what we saw through COVID were the evolution of Zoom towns. Now, Zoom towns were historically cheap markets. And example, I always pick on it, which would be Boise, Idaho. Back in 2019, you could have bought a home in Boise for $250,000. Well, today it's $650,000. Because what we found were people moving out of mainly of California and indeed Oregon, some in Washington and elsewhere, moving into these markets and say, because they can work, work remotely and saying, wow, it's how cheap. I'll buy three. And now the problem with that is you've got organic households that have been there for generations where the assumption was, the children at the right age would always be able to afford to buy a home. Guess what? Today, they can't. These are some of the markets that are across the country that will see prices correct more on the downside than we will see nationally. And nationally, I expect that home values will correct this year, but only by about 1%. So it's going to be flat. But I think there will be markets, uh, the ones I'm looking at are Boise, Austin, Texas, Colorado Springs, and several others that really got out over their skis through the pandemic. And they are going to have to revert back to that longer term trend of price growth. And then I think once they've done that, they can go forward. As long as you're in your home for long enough, uh, I, I really, I'm not worried at all because of the fact for the majority of us, we built up so much wealth through the course of the pandemic period. You're based in Ohio. Columbus, right? yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Columbus. Uh, wait, well, okay, we'll give you a little, I'm seeing a little snippet of information. Of all the households in Franklin County that have a mortgage, 46% of you have more than 50% equity, 46%. As I haven't got Q4 numbers, that's third quarter numbers from last year. So probably dropped down a little bit in fourth quarter, but that is a massive cushion underneath you. So let's say reducing a modest correction in pricing, no one's going underwater. I know, and Columbus has been one of those really hot, crazy markets that we've seen some some really crazy stuff happening. So that's awesome to know. And I know I'm a homeowner in the Columbus area, and I know that is true for me. I have just seen my my home value price go up quite a bit in the past few years, which, which is what you want. That's the goal of, of homeownership. Well, Matthew, this was so fantastic, and what a great insight into what we're experiencing now and into 2023. Thank you for your time today and for sharing this wonderful knowledge with us. Alison, it's been a delightful time visiting with you. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, thank you so much again. And to all of our listeners, thank you guys for tuning in. We will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to The Real View. That wraps up today's episode. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at ohiorealtors.org slash The Real View and on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Have questions, comments, or suggestions? We want to hear from you. 
email us at podcast at ohiorealtors.org. We'll see you next time.